Today's reading is from Psalm 85. Hear the word of the Lord. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord, that God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness look down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it is uh, good to be back here in KC, and for some of you, you're like, you were never gone. Um, it's because you weren't here either <laughs> last week, uh, we know. Um, <clears throat> but here we are, <laughs> here we are, here we are, you know, and, and not without a battle, right? How many of us, you know, were road warriors going to places that have this weird mixture of high school memories, right? In other words, we visited our parents <laughs> for, for Thanksgiving or family. And for the coils, um, that meant we first went to Cleveland, Ohio, which, you know, working up the excitement uh, to go to Cleveland seems almost unbearable, if not for some really tasty homemade Italian sausage, courtesy of Allie's grandma. Um, So that's where we went first. And then on Thanksgiving Day, we drove down to Columbus, Ohio, where most of my family is at. And then Saturday... You know, after we watched the Ohio State soundly defeat Michigan for the fifth year in a row, praise Jesus. Um, God is good, isn't he? Um, then we, um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to go any further than that. But here, but then, we, then we started the drive back to Kansas City on Saturday. And then Sunday, um, you know, we're in that, that home stretch of the drive. You know, it's that last two hours or so. Um, you're gritting your teeth as you're holding the steering wheel. You're starting to get a cramp in your right thigh. Um, because, you know, with all the stop-and-go traffic, cruise control's just out of the picture. So it's like gas, brake, gas, brake, hit. No, gas, brake, gas, brake. And so you start to get that cr- Have you ever had it? It's awesome. It's really great. So we're, we're about two hours outside of Kansas City, and my wife and I look at each other, and then we just say, man, you know, considering everything, the trip's going pretty good. And then as soon as those words, <laughs> right, you know where this is going. As soon as those words leave our mouths, Something happens to our kids in the back. Um, You know, before that, I mean, these words, they're like magic. Before that, they were like singing psalms and spiritual songs and hymns. They were like, you know, smiling and reading Bible stories, holding each other's hands. It was wonderful. And then we say those words, and, and, and for the next two hours, something happens. I mean, so I can't explain it well enough. So here's a picture of what our back seat looked like during that moment. It was, it was amazing. Um... Listen, I had one wish 
It was after all the endless conversations with family, which were great, you know, not having any personal space for a week, which was awesome. Uh, sandpaper for sheets in some of these what-a-deal hotels. Uh, and now my kids are screaming for two hours in the back. All I wanted was quiet, right? Some quiet. Listen, I love my kids. I do. And it wasn't as bad as, as I'm describing. But, you know, when you get to the, the holidays, we all know the busyness and the hustle and bustle that comes with the holidays that can make anyone, even someone like Mother Teresa, say, hey, Mama T needs her some me time, right? <laughs> Maybe that's a little too far. But, but here, in saying all that, honestly, honestly, I think, I, I don't know that we really want quiet. After saying all that, and some of you are looking at me like I'm an idiot, okay, so hang with me. Um, I think we say we want quiet and solitude, but time and again, when we actually find ourselves having the opportunity for quiet or solitude, maybe we're in our car, we're on the plane, or it's a late night after a long day at work, what do we often find ourselves doing? Turning on our phone, turning on the radio. Or maybe, just maybe, watching that next Netflix documentary that we can talk about on Facebook on how everybody needs to see this. Now, why do we do this? When we have the opportunity for quiet, we pursue noise. Why? Well, what I noticed over Thanksgiving afresh, just with family and friends, and even within my own heart, was that we really don't want silence. And it's not because it's too quiet. I, don't, I think that's an oversimplification. Instead... I think it's because our hearts are too loud and we don't like what they're saying. You know, comedian Louis, or Louis C.K., a while ago, he, he makes some interesting observations. He was on Conan for Late Night a couple, couple years ago and he talks about why he doesn't want his kids to have cell phones. So if you're a kid here and you want a cell phone, I'm sorry. Uh, I hope that you're not angry at me uh, for this. But, but he makes some reasons why he's never going to give his kids cell phones and I think they're pretty good reasons. But let's, let's take a listen. The thing is, I, you need to... Now, I heard some knowing laughter out there while that's going on. And, you know, what all this discomfort, I think, with silence portrays, with all the distractions we try to fill in our lives to numb the pain, it really reveals this lack of peace, I think, that all of us have, that we wrestle with. And I know, okay, it's a little cliche to talk about inner peace at Christmas, okay? It's like, nice, Gabe. But hey, but here's the deal. We all want peace, don't we? We all, we all know that, that, that feeling every now and then, that forever empty that kind of like pops its you know, eyes open and you think, no, 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 don't, don't speak. And listen, there's so many voices out there promising peace. Really, every distraction that we fill our lives with is making a promise for that peace. Every major worldview makes a promise for some pathway to get that peace. Every Miss America makes it one of her wishes, right? You know, but how do we seriously get peace? How do we live in peace and so let peace then live in us? And there's really only one way, and it's not the way we often think. You see, this morning, my prayer is that today we learn something that we're far too distracted to learn most other aspects of our lives to learn from an ancient songwriter and his own searching for this peace. Because his searching, which was guided by the Holy Spirit, which is why it's here in God's word, has become a song that's really sustained God's people for thousands of years. A song, a song of peace. A song they memorized. A song that they sung to one another. A song that sustained them 
when there was so much chaos around them. And it's a song I hope we learn to sing afresh today. So let's take a listen. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 85. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 493. While you're turning or flipping there in your Bible app, um, I want to ask you a question to think about. If I were to ask you to think about places without peace, what scenes run through your mind? Right, probably images of bloodshed like we've seen in Aleppo within the Syrian crisis and their battles against ISIS. We might think of the breakouts between protesters, employees, and police at the Dakota Access Pipeline. We might think of the stabbing at The Ohio State University that was over Thanksgiving weekend. And so with all this chaos, what do you think, as we see all this chaos around us, what do you think is the first step towards peace? Well, every generation, I think, knows this chaos and this frustration with chaos. This isn't a new thing for us. And the psalmist, he's not any different. He does what maybe I think most anyone would do, what we've all maybe done at different points, is he goes searching for peace and he begins by, by thinking back. Maybe, just maybe, he goes back to the Torah. And he opens up the scrolls of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Maybe he begins to think back to, to some of the stories that his parents told him around the dinner table of the recent history of Israel that would then become recorded in Nehemiah and Ezra. However he remembers, he looks back and remembers those, those moments, those, those rare moments where peace actually broke into the world. Those rare moments where actually Peace seemed real in Israel almost in every level. And you know where he sees the problem. Where he sees the greatest prohibitor to peace in our lives. The locus of resolution, if peace is to re-enter in this world, in verse 2, he makes it very clear. We see it's in the realm of our hearts. And he makes this clear by highlighting two terms, sin and iniquity. You see, in both cases, sin and iniquity is something that people own. For the psalmist, it's the iniquity of or belonging to the people and their sin, just because he's thinking of the past, but he's also including himself here. You see, the greatest prohibitor of peace finds its source in us. And I think this is, you know, the more I thought about this, this is, this is pretty heavy when you think about what these two terms mean. I mean, these are really churchy words, right? Right? So often these are words that are thrown around to make us feel guilty. Um, but understand the depth of what these words mean. Sin carries the meaning of rebellion. It carries the meaning of missing the mark, specifically rebellion against God. Iniquity is more than just an action, but it carries the meaning of this lawless state of being that comes to define who you are at the very core of who you are. Which when you put those two together... When the psalmist understands, led by the Holy Spirit, what is the greatest prohibitor to peace, it's what's going on within us. Because if the psalmist is right, so many times we're told what? That with all the chaos around us, peace is found by doing what? By going inward and getting the courage to just accept yourself. If you can just do an inventory of your past and your present, look at all the things that have gone on in your life and just accept it and embrace who you are, then you're making progress towards inner peace. What if that's not true? What if that's a lie that leaves us frustrated more than peaceful? 
You see, the psalmist, he actually challenges that assumption to its core. And instead, he says, the most chaotic place on the planet is within me. The most chaotic place on the planet is within me. If I feel helpless by what I see all around me with the chaos, I I dare not try to just go within because the most chaotic place on the planet is actually within me with this lawless state of being and this rebellious nature that I just have that's like crawling out of me. Peace isn't found by going inward deep enough and escaping this world or being distracted from this world and so achieving zen. The problem isn't mere perception as if those bad desires or those bad decisions just now need to be affirmed as good or valuable and it's not shifting the blame to those people out there which is often where that leads. The most chaotic place on the planet is within me. It's within you. And the greatest inhibitor to my peace, to your peace, to our peace together is the sin and iniquity that's destroying us in here and it's leaking out there. I think this is why peace can't be found by just isolating ourselves from dangerous people out there either. Nor is it found, then if this is true, by meditation and just emptying our minds of thinking in here. The world needs more thinking, not less. More people who are being thoughtful, not thoughtless. And if we're looking for peace, specifically inner peace, you know, it's the state of being where you're okay with just being. (laughs) Don't go looking within yourself because the most chaotic place on the planet is within you. And what that means and what the, what the psalmist discovers in our quest for peace and his quest for peace is that inner peace, if it's to be found at all, is found outside of you. Inner peace is actually found outside of me. Now, does that mean that peace can eventually dwell within us? Yes, I genuinely believe that. But if you want to find it first, the catalyst is understanding that inner peace is found outside of you. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, And that's why we need this book. That's why we need scripture because often what we think is obvious is wrong and often what we think is counterintuitive is right because we are so broken and so flawed, so lawless and rebellious that we long for more lawlessness and rebellion and we need the truth to speak to who we are. We need the psalmist's help here. Because listen, I think... I think one of the first misconceptions when I say that inner peace is found outside of me, outside of you, outside of us, is we've, we feel like there's something wrong with that. And in one sense, there is, because we've tried a lot of things outside of us to bring peace inside of us, haven't we? we it's usually with the phrase, if only, if only I would get that job. If only I would get that promotion, that would quiet the chaos that I feel going on underneath the surface. And we've somehow equated peace with self-fulfillment. Or maybe we think, you know what, God, if you'll just bring about that, that right relationship or really any relationship. and Is there something missing in our lives? I completely think there is. But the problem isn't that just something is missing, but that there's something present within us that's destructive. You see, you have to first deal with the lawlessness before peace can dwell within you. Does that make sense? You have to deal with the lawlessness that is a part of who we are before peace can actually dwell within you. And I think this is so often overlooked 
you know, when chaos strikes, specifically, you know, just reading a lot of articles around the Ohio State University stabbing, so many people began to cry out and say, hey, why don't we just forget about our differences? Why don't we just focus on what we're, how we're similar, how every worldview and religion is basically speaking truth, but in their own way? Then we can have peace around us. And that'll calm the anxiety we see in our culture, and that'll cultivate peace within us. But you see what happens with that, which is a narrative that's been around for quite some time, that has come to define our culture, is that rebellion and lawlessness isn't dealt with. What do we see in our culture? We actually see an even more fragmented and polarized culture than we have ever seen in the nation. Except now that this lawlessness and this rebellion is defined by what is most popularly agreed upon and shame is based upon whether you agree to that standard or not. And you can get shamed out of any circle. That can't be the answer. Instead, when the psalmist looks back on those moments when peace broke in on Israel, it was when the chaos, with all of its sin and all of its iniquity, was not ignored, but what? Look with me back again at verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah, sit in that. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. You see, the path to inner peace is not just self-acceptance and overlooking of sin and iniquity, but peace comes through forgiveness and acknowledging sin and iniquity. And notice that the primary emphasis here isn't on forgiving ourselves. It's not me forgiving me. The primary emphasis here isn't actually you forgiving another. In this psalm, the primary emphasis is on receiving God's forgiveness because that is absolutely crucial to peace. You think, I want us to think about this. If we think we weep over chaos, when we see the vulnerable and in unjust ways just absolutely obliterated across this globe, how much more God, who is perfect in his desire of goodness, perfect in his desire of justice, He's so good, in fact, that when you scan the pages of Scripture and when people have actually encountered this God and, and all that He is, they use this word holy. That, that's a way of saying set apart. Like there aren't words good enough for how good and how right and how pure and how holy He is, how set apart that we have to put Him in His own category of goodness and that His love is holy. It's so much better than our concept of love because we're rebellious and lawless, but He's perfect. His, his goodness is holy. His justice is holy. Even his anger is holy. Now imagine this holy, loving, and good God. He creates a world for no other reason because he doesn't need anything. We need to understand that he doesn't need anything. And he creates this world out of this abundance of his love that he might also delight in our delight of his good world. And then he creates us human beings and shows us this designed pathway of delight and says, enjoy. I've made this for you, but trust me, this is the pathway of delight. This is the pathway of flourishing. And he's given us all this. And then we come into the picture and we act like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> you weren't expecting that. So we act like Frank Sinatra. At the end of our lives, we want to say, I did it my way, Right? God, I know you've got this, this design, but honestly, I want to be able to define my own identity. 
I want to use your world for my ends. I've got wishes. I've got dreams. I've got desires. And so we repeat the patterns of destruction that we saw in our parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to our original parents, the first man and woman in the garden who chose to disregard God's good way of flourishing and peace. And the only solution to this chaos, the only pathway to peace is to come to God and ask for his mercy, his forgiveness for how he's made his good world a chaotic place, his deliverance from a mess of our own making. And you know, that's what our psalmist does right here in our passage. Upon the realization, the psalmist, he cries out, look with me at verse four, restore us again, O God, of our salvation and put away your, your right indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? This language of revive is to give us life again because we feel like we're dead without you. Oh, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I mean, the psalmist, he appears undone until we get to verse 8. And look at this turn with me at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. And here we come to the key of inner peace, really the key to, to peace this world over. If it's true, right? If it's true that the most chaotic place on the planet is actually within me and inner peace is actually found outside of me and we want, we want somehow to be able to be quiet and not be overwhelmed by this forever empty that Louis C.K. talks about. Here's the key. Don't miss this. Only God can speak peace to our chaos. You can't speak it to yourself. It can't be a neighbor who speaks it to you. Only God can speak peace to our chaos. When I was in uh, Jordan and Israel a while back studying, um, I had this wonderful experience where um, I, uh, I experienced this ancient cultural practice that's still a part of, of culture in the Arab world. You see, when you meet someone, instead of saying, what's happening or how you doing, you know, you, I mean, I don't really say that either, but you know, <laughs> whatever we say when we meet people, when you're in Arab culture, you say, you know, assalamu alaikum, right? Which means, Peace be unto you. And the polite response is, Va'alaikum salam, which is peace also unto you. And whenever you would go through this greeting, it was never just a greeting. It was an invitation. Whether I was in a Bedouin tent at Petra in Jordan, or I was sitting down with a Muslim merchant in the Muslim quarter in Jerusalem, or sitting down with a Jewish restauranteur eating falafel, it was always an invitation to sit, to eat, to talk, to be together, to be known by one another. You see, peace isn't meant to be a transaction where God gives us our little peace goodies and then we go our own way. Peace is always the beginning of a relationship, of being present with each other. Now to be sure, okay, the psalmist has in view God's kingly edict of mercy, but the forgiveness offered is always a pathway to reconciliation. It is God's response to our assalamu alaikum. It's God's response of va'alaikum salam. And this longing for relationship, to be present, 
not to just give us what we want and go our own way, but now to be with him and for him to be with us. And without his returned blessing, that's why the psalmist is waiting. He will speak peace. He will respond. Because if he doesn't, it's a curse for us to cry out, "Assalamu alaikum, and for him to be silent means the relationship is fractured and we sit and curse. But when he speaks peace, that is the sign of blessing and relationship and delight. You see, so often I think we believe that peace is merely the absence of strife, which makes sense in our world of chaos and our misunderstanding as to where peace comes. That's the best that we have to offer and to think about is if we can just get people to stop fighting and stay static or to put up walls and limit pain or what in Western culture has become the harm principle. As long as you're not harming someone, you're fine. And we have no desire for beyond that, this, the, the aspect of pursuing delight of the other. You see, peace, though, in Hebrew, shalom, it's so much bigger than that when God jumps in. So often we think peace is not merely, here, here, peace is not merely a state of being. Instead, peace is when God's glorious being has entered our state. It's about God's presence. True peace comes when God comes. Emmanuel, which is why Christmas is so beautiful. It's the only hope of our peace. The one who spoke this world into existence at the dawn of time, who spoke original order in the midst of chaos, can step into our lives and step into this fragmented world and speak peace and bring order once again. A world where he's present and he walks with his people as he did in the garden and bring harmony. This glory, God's glory, is what the psalmist longs for that we see here in verse 9. So let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. And notice, I don't say, and the psalmist doesn't say, he may speak. We need to understand this, okay? This isn't a condition as to whether God will speak or not. The psalmist says he will speak. He will speak. It's not a question of if. So what's the condition? Before we go too far, the psalmist makes one warning that we have to touch on here. And I think we far too often miss. The psalmist, he has no question as to whether or not God will speak, but there is one thing we can do to keep us from hearing him. What can we do to clog our ears? What can we do to ensure our ears are deadened to his life-giving breath? Look at verse 8 again. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. You see, the greatest obstacle to peace a surefire way to clog our ears to this peace that he longs to speak to us is to ignore what God has already spoken. To ignore what God has already spoken. All it takes for you to miss out on this peace is to do absolutely nothing. Chaos, remember, it lives in here. As one songwriter put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All it takes for us to do is to do nothing, to be without this peace. 
to not make time or space for us to listen to what God has spoken in the authors of Scripture, to not make relationships a priority that will point you back to the very good of the garden that we see laid out in Scripture. Ignore your sin and your iniquity. Live carefree and so careless without God. Choose to think you don't need anyone, that you don't need the church. Because the path of folly, it's just the path of self-discovery, right? I'm not a reader anyway. I learn best by doing, even if it's the wrong thing. Listen, when, when, too many times I've seen friends and family members who ignore what God has already spoken. I see it in myself. And God, he's warned about the path of folly. It's deceit and it's allure. The promises of peace that it makes that always leave us in destruction. And I've seen too many family members in my own life who maybe not after a couple years, but surely after a couple decades now, find themselves alone and in a chaos of their own making that is so loud they can't hear anything else. We have to understand, do you want peace? Do you really want peace? Then you have to understand that the most chaotic place on the planet is within you. And inner peace must come from outside of you. And only God can speak peace to our chaos. And the greatest obstacle to hear him speaking peace is to ignore what he's already spoken, either intentionally or even unintentionally. Because listen, God will speak peace to his people. And listen, the psalmist, he's so confident. How can he be so confident that God will indeed speak peace to his people? Because he already has listened to what God has spoken about himself in the past. Something that can be really missed and very easily missed in this psalm is that the psalmist calls God by his personal name, Yahweh. It's, it's symbolized in the Lord in all caps in our psalm. And not every psalmist does this. And the psalmist is saying, hey, I'm, I'm banking on who God is and what he has said already about himself. What he has spoken, this is not a God of my own making. This is not a God of my wishes and my dreams. This is a God who's interacted in history. And he looks back. The pretext to this text is Exodus 34, where God in all of his glory actually descends on Mount Sinai and stands there with Moses. And let's look together. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed what? About himself. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See these terms showing up again that the psalmist is highlighting here in his song. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving what? Iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He is a God of justice, but a God of steadfast love. And this is who the psalmist calls upon because he knows what God has already spoken and that gives him confidence for what he know, knows God will speak. This is not some wish dream, but it's based upon what God has already done in history. And even though he may not feel peace yet, even though he may look across the landscape of Israel and not see peace yet, and even though he may feel like this word of peace has not been spoken in his lifetime, because he trusts what God has spoken, he can wait for what God will speak. Oh, and when God, when he speaks this word of peace, harmony will define the world again. 
His character will be in the atmosphere. There will be no more tears, no more sadness. And the psalmist, he just ends with this poetic language of reconciliation here at the end of our psalm. He takes this, look, look with me here, beginning in verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace, they kiss each other like relatives after they haven't seen each other for years. Faithfulness, it springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. He has this glorious picture that even the earth teems with flourishing when peace and the forgiveness and reconciliation with God as he dwells with his people. And listen, Never has there been a louder whisper of this word of peace than in the manger of Jesus. When this word became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel, God with us, Prince of Peace. And never have righteousness and peace, justice and forgiveness kissed like at the cross. You see, we taste peace in our salvation. We get a foretaste of even this indwelling peace when the Spirit comes to dwell in God's people even now. And yet, we wait with the psalmist. We wait with the psalmist until Christ comes to dwell with His people and makes this peace resound across the landscape of the world and every bit of our chaos to the depths of who we are as far from the east as the west, transforms this world over to be a place of harmony and integratedness once again. Until that day, that glorious day, may we learn to sing a new song. May we sing the songs that have sustained God's people for thousands of years. A song of peace. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints but let them not turn back to folly. Let's pray. God, we come in the quietness of our hearts, even now, knowing that from the cross you actually cry, it is finished. You have paid our debt you have covered our sin with the blood of Christ. And now if we will receive it, you cry back, va'alaikum salam, in Jesus. That this peace might resound in our hearts as we look forward to the restoration of all things, what has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus would be brought to completion upon his return. Oh God, may you help us to sing a new song. The peacelessness we so often feel. May we, may we follow the pathway of Scripture, of the psalmist, rather than the lies and the other narratives that surround us that will leave us frustrated. God, may we trust you, what you have spoken to us and about yourself already, that we might be ready to once again, upon Christ's return, hear that glorious cry of peace. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.